today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. why in this picture here you see Jael doing what we need to do when our flesh rises up listen Sisera he wanted to be fed and comforted didn't he we must not allow those appetites of our flesh those sinful things to be fed and comforted no 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 we have to be aggressively putting them to death that's the picture here Jael does something to kill the very surviving element here. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through judges. When we're struggling with a certain sin, it's tempting to think that we can handle it on our own. We put on a smile for others and pretend everything's okay. But this is never okay. As long as we keep our sin hidden, we're nurturing it, letting it grow until it completely destroys us. In today's message, Pastor Gary shows how we can apply the battles fought in the Old Testament to the battles we fight every day in the spiritual realm. Like jail, we need to quickly and ruthlessly destroy that sin before it destroys us and everyone around us. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part two of today's message titled, Killing Sisera. Now, actually... This is not something arrogant that she's like, I'm meeting under my palm tree. It actually is probably the Deborah, not her, but the Deborah of Genesis chapter 35, who was the nurse for Rebecca. Rebecca's nurse was named Deborah, and the Bible says in Genesis 35, 8, that Deborah died and was buried under a tree near Bethel. Well, it tells us in the text that this Deborah was leading the people of Israel near Bethel, and this tree is probably named after the Deborah of Genesis 35. But that would make for easy association, though, because if you're named Deborah, uh, you want people to know where they can find you, you'll meet under the palm of Deborah, but probably a reference to the Deborah of Genesis chapter 35. It also tells us in the story that she was a songwriter. All of chapter 5 is a song. It begins in verse 1. It says, On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. And we know that she was really the writer because it is written in the first person. And she talks about herself, Deborah, being the mother of Israel. And so she's a songwriter. This all of chapter 5 is a song that details the victory that the Israelites ended up having over the Canaanites. And their victory is preserved in this song. Last but not least, the text tells us that she was a warrior. It tells us that she accompanied the army of Israel into war against the Canaanites. Now, we're not sure that she engaged in hand-to-hand combat personally, but at the very least, it says she went with the army of Israel, and her very presence was of particular help to the people as they fought this battle against the Canaanites. Now, she herself was not the leader of the army of Israel, but she appoints a leader. 
And this is where the story picks up where we left off. So let's keep reading here now where we left off in chapter 4, verse 6. She's going to choose here her military commander. Verse 6, she sent for Barack, son of Obama, from... I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that... That's another Barak. Sorry about that. This is son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, let me be clear. I'm just telling you what verse 8 says. And he said, I will go with you if you go with me. But if you don't go, I won't go. That's the best I have. I'm sorry. That's the best. That's the best. Oh, that's sympathy. I didn't. That's sympathy. That's sympathy applause right there. That's not that good. Anyhow, he says this to her. He says, I will go with you if you go with me. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, it's at this point, it's a little tricky to understand this. Because you can interpret this in one of two ways. Either Barak here sees her as this leader of Israel and God's hand is on your life. And so, Deborah, I'm not going to go unless you go because God is with you and we need God. And so we need you. Or he's a wimp. There's no way to really tell here whether he is highly respecting her. Like, I'm not going to go into war unless you go because God's hand is on your life and we need you. Or if he's just saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. And, you know, I'm kind of a wimp. We don't know. Now, her response to him seems to indicate the latter. Her response seems to indicate that he's rather wimpish here. But before I read her response, I don't want to throw him entirely under the bus because I do want you to note that Hebrews chapter 11 mentions him by name as a person of faith. In that great list of the people of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, he does get mentioned by name. So whether he went into war feeling the confidence of her because God's hand was upon her, or whether he went reluctantly because he didn't really want to go, because he was scared maybe, either way he went, he leads the people of Israel into victory with God's help, and he gets mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. But her response seems to indicate that he's a little wimpish about this, because look at what she says in verse 9. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Ouch. He's basically saying, okay, because you're going about this this way, you're not going to get the glory for it. So her response seems to indicate that he's very timid here and doesn't want to do this. And therefore, she says to him in kind of a mild rebuke, okay, I'll go with you if that's the way it needs to be. But you're not going to get the credit for this. The credit is going to go to a woman. Now, she's not speaking of herself. There's another woman in this story. Read on with me. So the rest of verse 9. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Haber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera, this is the general of the army of the Canaanites, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Agoyim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, 
This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Okay, so this is a great victory. God gives the Israelites the victory here, and the Canaanites are routed, and they're all defeated. It says that there wasn't a single survivor of the Canaanite army except the general himself, Sisera. He abandons his chariot, and he flees on foot. Verse 17. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of, here she is, Jael. Circle her name. Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. You know, he's tired. He's been running here. He's been engaged in battle, and he fled to her tent. So he's tired. In verse 19, I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. By the way, why'd she give him milk instead of water? All he wanted was water. Because warm milk makes us feel sleepy. She wants to put this guy to sleep. Notice here, verse 20. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. But Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. That's going to leave a mark. <laughs> Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. All right, your attention. We're introduced to this woman. Here's the other woman in the story. He's going to get the credit for the real victory of this battle. Her name is Jael. There's no J in the Hebrew alphabet. Her name is spelled and pronounced with a Y, Yael. And her name literally translates in Hebrew, you ready for this? Wild mountain goat. And she's living up to her name, isn't she? This is gruesome. This is bizarre. Jael, man, acting like a wild mountain goat. Go, girl. You know what I'm saying? Now, this is not the kind of girl you want to bring home to mom and dad. This is not the girl you want to date. Bring her home to your house and mom and dad meeting her. And mom says, well, Jael, what a pretty name. What does that mean? Mountain goat. Bah! You know, and, well, what do you do, sweetheart? Well, I'm pretty good with a hammer, you know cruel this girl is cruel and can you imagine her husband because the bible says she's married his name is Haber. can you imagine after this incident he's never going to take a nap again in his life so this is that girl now deborah the judge of israel hails her as a heroine in the song in chapter five go to chapter five because we're going to see here in the song how deborah hails her as a heroine of israel Chapter 5, verse 24, she gets a whole stanza here devoted to her. And here's the song. Here's the stanza of the song. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Haber the Canite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women, 
He asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. By the way, I don't know what tune goes with this, all right? <laughs> this is, what kind of a song is this? I mean, you know, verse 26, her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. I, mean, I, I don't know. That's pretty telling how I spent a lot of my time as a kid watching Gilligan's Island. So how do we bring this and make this serious? All right, here's how. Consider the history of Israel. Look, here's the application of this. When you look at the history of Israel, particularly from the time that they were slaves in Egypt, through the wilderness wandering, all the way into the promised land, that whole scene serves to be for us what we call in biblical terms typologies, various types that portray important spiritual truths to us and to our Christian lives today. How so? So when you think about the Israelites as slaves in Egypt, Egypt is a type of the world in that story. And the people were enslaved to sin. They were enslaved in the world. And Pharaoh is a picture. He is a type in biblical typology. He is a type of Satan who wants nothing more than to keep you enslaved, to keep you in bondage to sin. What does God do? He has mercy. So he sends Moses. Moses will be the deliverer for the people of God to lead them out of their slavery, their slaverous conditions, into a place of freedom. Moses represents the law. And the law, however, is incomplete in bringing you to the place of ultimate redemption. The law, while it displayed the character and the righteous requirements of God, the law is never completely able to bring us into the promised land. No, in fact, Moses would hand over the leadership to his protege, Joshua. Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yahashua. It translates, the Lord is salvation. It is the same given name, the same Hebrew given name for Jesus. Jesus is just a Greek transliteration of his given Hebrew name, which is Yahashua, the identical name that Joshua was given. Joshua is the English transliteration. Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the same Hebrew name, Yahashua. And Joshua represents the New Testament grace. And it would only be through Jesus that you would be able to enter the promised land, if you will. The promised land, listen, is not a picture of heaven. I know a lot of times we think of in biblical typology, promised land is a picture of heaven. In fact, historically speaking, when you look at some of the old Negro spirituals, those are often sung about the promised land being heaven, but that's not really the best biblical typology. The promised land really represents our new life in Christ, but we're still living in this world. Therefore, there will still be battles to be fought. There's still giants in the land. There are still circumstances and things that have to be wrestled with. But it is through Joshua, now through Jesus, we come into the promised land. We cross the Jordan River, a picture of baptism. We come into the promised land. But now there will still be things we have to fight. There will still be battles we have to reckon and we have to be victorious over. And it is this picture of the Christian life. Now having been redeemed by Jesus who dies on a cross, you and I, though our spirits are redeemed, when you receive Christ as your Savior, your spirit is regenerated. Your spirit is redeemed. But you and I are still living in a body of flesh. And that flesh is unregenerated. 
And so our flesh is going to constantly be in conflict with our spirit because our flesh still desires some of the old appetites, carnal, fleshly, immoral things. And it will be up to us with the help of God and his Holy Spirit to resist temptation, to say no to ungodliness and sin, and to continually be aware that that battle is real and that we have to fight. Paul would say in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, that's what I do. And he talked about the battle of the flesh and the spirit. But then he adds, thanks be to Jesus Christ who gives me the victory. And you and I have to understand that in biblical typology, this story here paints a picture of our lives in sin, enslaved to sin, and the world that the devil wants to keep us in bondage. God sends the law so we might understand his righteous requirements. But then the completion of the law is grace. Jesus comes, dies on a cross. We have eternal life now. We enter, if you will, into the promised land. We're baptized as evidence of that relationship with Jesus. And now the battle ensues. And you and I have to crush and defeat those things that rise up against us, even from within our fleshly nature that is subject still to temptation and sin. Now, lest you think I'm over-spiritualizing this, listen, Paul takes part of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to talk about this. So if you'll leave the book of Judges and just real quickly go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the New Testament, and I want you to see with me how Paul talks about all of these things in this brief period of Israel's history, serve to be examples to us or types so that we can be aware that this battle exists within our flesh. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1, this is what he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Notice how he talks here about how the rock in the Old Testament scene of their wilderness wandering from which they got water, that was a type of or a picture of Christ, our solid rock on which we stand, going through the Red Sea and then again through the Jordan River. It's like a picture of being baptized. And Paul links all of this in spiritual terms. And he goes on to say in verse 5, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples. And the Greek word there is tupos. We get our English word type. These things occurred as types to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you were standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you were tempted, not if, when you were tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, that last verse is the verse that we most often quote, and it's a great verse. But I want you to notice the context. It's on the heels of the whole 
summary of Israel's history as slaves and the wilderness wanderings and coming into the promised land. And Paul says these things have occurred as types, as examples, as pictures for us. That when you get to the promised land, there's going to be some battles to be fought. And Paul links it in that idea to our own flesh. And he says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to everybody else. But God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, God will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. But it is this reminder to us that our redeemed spirits are living with an unredeemed body. And we must fight that battle daily. So when you look at the story in Judges, it is a picture for us. Here come the Canaanites. And if there were ever a picture of flesh, it's the Canaanites. Remember that they engaged in sexual immorality, ritualistic prostitution, self-mutilation, and human sacrifice. They are a picture of carnal, sinful nature. And there's one that is elusive. Sisera. You become a Christian and you fight those battles of your flesh and you seem to conquer most of them. But doesn't there seem to always be that Sisera? There's that one elusive sin issue that you still seem to wrestle with. What is your Sisera? Is it pride, jealousy, lust, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment? What might it be? That's why in this picture here, you see Jael doing what we need to do when our flesh rises up. Listen, Sisera, he wanted to be fed and comforted, didn't he? We must not allow those appetites of our flesh, those sinful things, to be fed and comforted. No, no, no. We have to be aggressively putting them to death. That's the picture here. Jael does something to kill the very surviving element here. And notice, if you will, what Sisera wanted her to do. Just go to the entrance of the tent and lie. Tell everybody I'm not here. That's what our flesh wants us to do, too. Just lie. Just pretend like everything's okay. Instead, what we need to do is aggressively put to death those things in our lives that are drawing us away from Christ, that are sin issues. In fact, this is why Paul would say it in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He says in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify the desires or the lusts thereof. Today, here's my challenge for all of us, that we would just ask the Lord to embolden us to live lives of such consecration and holiness that we would be willing to put to death the Sisera of our own lives. That we would be willing to do the courageous thing, not to coddle that sin, not to feed it, not to make it feel comfortable, but to drive a tent peg through the fleshly desires of our hearts and to live a life for the glory of Jesus Christ. Hey, 
Pastor Gary has been teaching through the book of Judges, sharing the incredible lengths God goes to in order to rescue his people and teach them about himself. Sometimes God needs to use extreme circumstances to get our attention and turn us back to the path he knows is best for us. We pray you've been encouraged as you listen today and that God is working in your heart even now. If you'd like to talk with someone about what following God means for you, or if you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. This message today has been brought to you from Pastor Gary and Cornerstone Connection a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. You're most welcome to come see us in person if you're in the area. We meet every Sunday and Wednesday as a group, and we'd love to have you be part of our services. Head to cornerstoneconnection.cc to find out more about the church and find directions and service times. While you're at our website, be sure to check out our archive of previous messages and download our mobile app to take them with you on the go. Thanks for tuning in today, and be sure to join us again for another edition of Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know.